All right, Alexander, let's do an update on what is going on in Ukraine. We had uh, a statement from Stoltenberg's chief of staff talking about some sort of peace deal territory for NATO membership. He has since retracted that statement and apologized. We have uh, people like uh, Sarkozy hinting at, at some sort of off-ramp with uh, the conflict in Ukraine. We have an article from Newsweek talking about how Zelensky faces an impossible decision to either hold back his forces, regroup and face a Russian offensive or to go all in, which is the, the preferable choice from Zeluzhny, which I think is an interesting um, revelation. My, my hunch there is that if things go badly, they're going to pit it on Zeluzhny. But anyway, that's coming out of Newsweek. And you also have an article from Forbes talking about how the uh, Ukraine military, the Zelensky regime, is indeed going to go all in with the 82nd Brigade. And they're the ones with the 14 Challenger tanks and striker vehicles. And they have all the NATO equipment. And this is the big... Uh, reserve force, the, the best trained, the, the, the most uh, lethal uh, force that Ukraine has, and they are going to throw it into the front line towards the direction of, uh, I believe, uh, Zaporozhye, Rapetino, that whole area, in order to break through and get to Dokmak and Melitopol and and uh, divide the Russian forces, split the Russian forces in two. So a lot of uh, interesting articles and interesting statements coming out of Ukraine. What do you think? Right. Well, I think a lot is, an awful lot is going on, and I think we're seeing preparations now for the big, uh, for the big retreat. Not, I don't mean the retreat by uh, Ukraine on the battlefronts. In fact, I mean I think you're absolutely right. I think they're going to try on the battlefronts to double down and triple down on their offensive, and they're going to launch this brigade, the 82nd Brigade, which, by the way, as I understand it, is their last important. Reserve Brigade, but it's the one with well, the challenge. That's what Forbes says. That's that, what Forbes that's what, says. That's yeah, Forbes and I think, says, and I, you know, and you know, it's David Axe, who's uh, pretty uh, well informed and a fervid supporter of Ukraine, by the way. So, I mean, I, I think this is probably what they're going to do. But um, I don't think anybody, any longer, at least in the West or even within the government of Ukraine, seriously believes that this is going to work and is going to change the dynamics, the underlying dynamics on the battlefield. I mean, apparently, and again, this is, you know, what the reports are telling us, this brigade, the 82nd Brigade, numbers 2,000 men. Now, that is not a huge force to break, away, break through all the way to the Sea of Azov. I mean, it, it's you know, not going to be enough if, if it is indeed the last reserve. It's the last thing that they have to throw in. And yes, they have the strikers. And yes, they have the challengers. But why are they going to succeed where the uh, Leopard 2s... And the Bradleys have failed. I mean, it doesn't seem logical to me. They might be able to capture this village, Rabotina, you know, which they've been trying to capture now for two and a half months. But if they capture Rabotina, what then? I mean, they've still got the big fortified lines ahead of them. So, I, you know, I think this is probably the last throw, but I think it is what they're going to do. And I think you're absolutely correct, by the way, uh, all the indications are that um, Zelensky is manoeuvring 
to pin the debacle on Zeluzhny. And there's again rumours that the defence minister, Aleznikov, is also for the, uh, for the axe as well. Apparently there's talk of giving him a position as an ambassadorship in some place or other. But anyway, get rid of, blame it all on Zeluzhny, blame it all on Reznikov, bring other people in, try to keep the show on the road in some way. And bear in mind, of course, that Newsweek, they're talking about go on the, going on the defensive, but the point is that they acknowledge that there is a massive Russian offensive in preparation, perhaps for the spring. So that's, that's the real thing that I think they're worrying about. But this is all events on the battlefronts, and we've spent a lot of time discussing the events on the battlefronts. There's more attempts today. Today being the 17th of August, by the way, uh, to capture Robotino. It's all, all failed. Been, they failed to break through on the Vremevka salient area. They're, they've been pushed back in the Bakhmut area. They've lost ground there. The 82nd Brigade will be thrown in. But I don't think anybody any longer expects this offensive is going to succeed. The big story are, is all this talk now about diplomatic moves to try to end the war. And I think let's talk first of all about Jensen. This is Stoltenberg's chief of staff who made those comments in a talk show. And he's apologised, as you correctly said. He says that he this is all about, you know, swapping territory for peace and then joining NATO. He says, you know, Ukraine might need to think about doing that. He then has apologised for that. He then says a mistake. He made a mistake. If you read his words very carefully, what he's saying is it's not a mistake to suggest this as a potential way forward. It was a mistake to talk about it in the way that he did on that discussion program. In other words, it's it's the way he presented it rather than the idea itself. That is the mistake. When people engage in this kind of convoluted language, which if you look at Jensen's so-called retraction, it's, it's actually convoluted language, then that tells you that something is up. The White House, of course, have also issued a denial, but that, you know, that they support this thing, but then that's, again, no more than to be expected. But we now have Sarkozy weighing in. We've had... Uh, reports appearing in other places. We discussed one of them, you know, a couple of weeks ago that had appeared in Moscow Times. It was all very strange, lots of things going on there. But that's, it seems to me, the plan. Freeze the war, agree a ceasefire with the Russians, give the Russians, allow the Russians to keep what they've got. Bring Ukraine after a short interval into NATO. Build it up. Pour more money in. Pour more weapons in. Rebuild the Ukrainian army. And then wait until Russia eventually collapses. Because that's what they still think ultimately is going to happen. And we've seen a lot of talk now about the German, what happened with Germany. That, you know, Germany lost a lot of its territory to the Soviets after the Second World War. The East German 
German Democratic Republic was created, but West Germany was still nonetheless able to join NATO, and they supposedly, allegedly waited it out. It took about, what, 40 years, but eventually, eventually, East Germany collapsed, and the Soviet Union collapsed, and East Germany joined West Germany, and they all remained in NATO. So that, that's the proposal that's been floated around today. And you can see, you can sense that those discussions are underway now. I don't know whether anybody seriously believes that any of this is going to work out. But the priority, it seems to me, is to try to get some kind of a ceasefire in place, so as to do exactly what you've been discussing in previous programmes, prevent a collapse in Ukraine before the election next year, keep this thing under some kind of wraps. You don't want a debacle, you don't want a Ukrainian collapse in the spring. So that's what the whole agenda is all about. It's not going to work. The Ukrainians are opposing it. The Russians will completely oppose it. But that's the idea that Jake Sullivan and the group around him are now coming up with. Uh, yeah, I was going to say this is the German idea. We've been down this, this path before. This, this was floated out. This plan was floated out, yeah. I, I want to say maybe nine months ago or six yeah, months ago. Absolutely. By the yeah. New York Times or someone. Who, yeah. Is that correct? Exactly. That's entirely correct. That's entirely yeah. co- I think it was about six months ago. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's 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 now you know the, 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 the there was then the swing back if you remember there was going to be the offensive and then there was then the offensive happened the offensive hasn't worked it hasn't improved Ukraine's military position so now you go back to that plan and you've got all of these ex diplomats of the Council for Foreign Relations apparently this is true trying to talk to the Russians to get them to agree to this and the Russians are saying no. As they're bound to do, but that's that's now the plan. The, the West Germany plan. That's the West German. The West we Germany plan. Yeah. Exactly. The West Germany plan. Yeah, and and, and why do they believe that Russia is going to collapse? Is, are, are we back to this this ruble at a hundred yeah. yeah. uh, dollar thing, or what's what's the what's the reasoning behind Russia's collapse? Uh, because even insider which may not be the, the most reliable publication, but they cited a U.S. Um, bank report, which claims that, that Russia is is getting wealthier and the West is getting poorer. That's pretty much what the report said. So well, what, what, what are they basing this collapse on? Putin's popularity is at 80-something percent. Yeah. The economy is, is humming along. You have this ruble uh, fall, but... You've explained this a dozen times as to why this is happening. Russia doesn't seem to be worried about this. I was in uh, Russia and I didn't see people worried about the the ruble to dollar uh, exchange because Russia doesn't use, they they can't use dollars or or euros. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know. What do they care? I I mean, what is this based on? I mean, that is, that is an extremely good point, actually, by the way, before we proceed. I mean, you know, this is, a, I mean, this is an anachronistic issue. I mean, the, the ruble, dollar, ruble, euro exchange rate is irrelevant for most Russians now because Russia doesn't trade in ruble, in dollars. I mean, that, that this is no longer an issue anymore. But anyway, let, 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 let's proceed. Well, what do they base this on? They base it on nothing. 
except hope. The thing to understand is that you're never going to get anywhere in the EU, in Washington or whatever, by coming along and saying that you know Putin is stronger than ever, Russia is getting stronger, getting richer. You can't, even if you know that privately, you can't say it. If you did, they'd, they'd eat you alive. So nobody says it. So everybody goes around pretending that sooner or later Russia will collapse. They come up with the endless things, you know, Prigozhin, there was the Prigozhin affair. You remember when the Prigozhin affair happened, you actually said this. I remember this, the very first video we did about the Prigozhin affair, you said they will seize on this to say that if we just keep going long enough, Russia is unstable, Prigozhin affair proves it, Russia will collapse. And that is exactly what they're doing. So they're talking like this. Now, what they all privately think at the back of their minds is another matter completely. Their concern is not what's going to happen in five years' time, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time. Remember, German unity reunification took 40 years before it took place. They're not interested in that. Their concern is next year, November 2024, they have that election to win. So they don't want a debacle. They don't want a collapse in Ukraine before the election. So they come up with all of these plans. The excuse is, well, you know, this is not forever. Eventually, Russia will collapse. Putin will go. Ukraine will get back its territories. But in the meantime, we're able to build it up. And we're able to do it inside NATO. So we have actually won. Eventually, we're going to win even more. That's the spin. You've said it again many times. These people are all ultimately about spin. This is what it's all about at the end of the day. Whether they, they don't really believe that any of this is going to happen. But that's not their concern. Winning the election is. So Sarkozy said something very interesting in his statement about um, trying to find an off-ramp for Ukraine, which is essentially what he was talking about. Uh, I, he showed, I'm, I'm not a fan of Sarkozy. I'm not a fan of what he did to, to the world, specifically to Libya. Uh, you know, but he, he was talking about an off-ramp to this conflict and basically admitting that uh, that the collective West has lost. That's, that was pretty much what, what he was saying in his statement. But he said that Europe's interests do not align, in this instance, do not align with the U.S.'s interests. Yes. And that's true. You know, Biden has an election, November 2024, but Europe doesn't have an election in 2024. The EU doesn't have a 2024 election. Poland has one in October. I believe uh, Slovakia has one this week or next week, if, I, if, I'm, if my memory uh, serves me correct. I mean, this is, this is not in Europe's interest to drag this out for a year and a half because Europe is becoming uh, hollowed out. It's, it's getting deindustrialized. Germany yeah. is, the, is the best case of this. Yeah. So why do they go along with this? Why, do they, why does the EU go along with this? What do they well, care about the U.S. elections in 2024? What do they care about Biden? 
Well, you're completely right. And of course, Sarkozy is completely right. Now, just to talk about Sarkozy, I'm pretty sure that when he's making these statements, he is now positioning himself in France for a next presidential run. He's going to pose as the, you know, the democratic candidate against the terrible Marine Le Pen. <laughs> and he's going to be the person who's going to take over. And he's also posing as the realist he says, look, I mean, you know, this Macron policy has been a complete disaster. We've hitched ourselves to the Germans. We've hitched ourselves to the Americans. The point has now come where we should break away in the interests of France, but also in the interests of Europe. And I'm the man to do it. Don't, you know, let Le Pen come in and make things even more complicated than they already are. So that's, I, I think that's what Mac, I, I think that's what Sarkozy is up to. Whether as president of France, he would actually deliver on any of these things. That's another matter. And we don't, don't need to get sidetracked on any of that, because to be frank, I don't think Sarkozy has any chance of getting reelected as president of France. Again, for all kinds of reasons, which we can put aside for another day. But you're absolutely correct. And so is Sarkozy. Why are they doing this to themselves? Why are they letting Europe be obliterated economically the way it is? Why are they allowing... I mean, Germany is now in recession. The Netherlands is now in recession. Britain is teetering on the brink of recession. We have stagnation at the very least in Britain, and in practical realities. You live in Britain, you can see that we are in recession. Living standards are falling across Europe. Deindustrialization is taking hold. Why do they continue to do this? The reason they are doing this is because there are still very, very powerful people in Europe, in the European Commission, in the EU bureaucracy, in some of the governments, for whom this project continues to serve their own interests. You're talking about the EU. They have used the Ukrainian crisis to extend their power even more over the sovereign states. So the EU now effectively controls energy policy, it controls financial policy, it controls all kinds of things which it didn't control previously. So the EU bureaucracy has done very well out of this crisis. Some of the people in the various EU states who rely on the EU for support, they're doing very well as well. So they have no interests in breaking with this policy because it has worked for them. It might not be working for Europe, but it has worked for them. And of course, vicariously, even if Europe is being smashed as a result of all of this, it's always agreeable to think that you're involved in some kind of joint enterprise with a superpower, which is of course the United States, and never, ever forget there's a financial motive as well, because, of course, there's going to be arms sales to Europe. There's going to be more jobs in the EU bureaucracy, in the NATO bureaucracy. They want to expand NATO. They want to do all of these things. And as you've said so many times in these kind of situations, follow the money. So what is in the interests of the political class may not be in the interests of Europe where it is the political class which is in control.
Right. Uh, they're going to have more power and control. They're gaining more power and control out of uh, this this uh, Ukraine project. But uh, for how long? I mean, well, they're that... going to have they're going to have complete power control of a hollowed out, weak, bankrupt, and broke union. I mean, what's what's the purpose of it? Well, that's entirely correct because, of course, what you're having is a situation where the parasite is killing the host. Because that's what they are. I mean, this is a parasitical uh, class that's latched onto Europe and it is killing the host. Now, the trouble is, and this is, I'm afraid, the iron rule of this kind of politics. There are historical variants about over this extending back across history. The parasitical class who are killing the host never never see it that way. As far as they're concerned, they always prioritise their own personal interests over the larger interests of Europe. So yes, ultimately Europe is being hollowed out. Ultimately Europe is going to lose its more of its positions. What they will always say in response to that is that the answer to these problems is more Europe, not less, and they will demand even more integration and even more control as a solution to the very problems that they are creating. So that is the iron law, I'm, I'm sorry to say, of this. Eventually, of course, there will be either a pushback or some kind of collapse, but that's going to be, or at least they think, sometime sometime in the future, it's not going to affect them directly. That's their, that is their assumption. Yeah, I think that's the sad part to all of this, just to wrap up the video, is that you still yeah. have a, a significant portion of the uh, European population, the EU uh, yeah. citizenry, if you can call it that, that is still uh, in favor of more Europe. They believe that Europe is indeed the, uh, the solution to all of these problems, which the European Union has created. They create the problems, they provide yeah. the apparent solution, and people actually buy into that. And what you get is more problems, though. So, I mean, yes. that's, that's the sad part, is that I, I, maybe uh, enough people aren't waking up to, to the reality of, of who's behind all of the, this misery, and they're not waking no. up fast enough. Well, exactly. This is indeed the problem. And of course, you have, uh, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, you know, the other, the, the, they, they control still the media. They're very, very aggressive in, the, in their rhetoric. Um, that anybody who speaks out about this is classified as some kind of populist extremist. You already see moves, which you've covered in one of your programs on your channel, about, you know, the banning of the IFD in Germany. And all, all this is justified on the basis that, of course, the EU is protecting democracy, when, of course, on any objective analysis, it is doing the opposite. Now, before we finish, I think one I point mean, you, you said... You talked about this with, yeah. with Terry Baudet as well. Baudet, absolutely, yeah, with a long programme about did, yeah. this, a very long programme about this. But, of course, he, in return, gets criticised. He's called all kinds of things in the Netherlands, and people believe it. And there's a lot of people who go along with this because they hear all of these things. I mean, if you actually listen to him, he is a European libertarian. I mean, that's his political views. But that is not the way he is presented to most people in the Netherlands or across Europe. They represent him as being the diametric opposite of that, as a sort of right-wing authoritarian populist, which, of course, 
He's not. Anyway, that, that, that's all I wanted to say about this. But the, coming back to these plans, you know, for freezing the conflict, bringing Ukraine into NATO, doing all of these things, it's not going to work anyway. Because, of course, the Russians will never agree to this. This is what makes this whole thing so completely unreal. And, you know, I discussed this in my own pro program yesterday. They have this utterly cynical view of the way the Russians approach things. They, they always assume that you can bribe the Russians to do things that are contrary to Russian policy and contrary to Russian interest. So they tell each other that, you know, what the Russians are really in a, all about is some kind of land grab in eastern Ukraine. You give them the land and they'll just walk away. And, of course, that's not what the Russians are about. For them, Ukraine's membership of NATO is the core issue. So the Russians are certain to reject this plan. And, in fact, they've already said so. I mean, Medvedev, of course, is churning out comments about how this is going to be completely unacceptable to Moscow. And it is going to be unacceptable to Moscow. But, again... They don't see that. They spend all their time talking about these clever plans with each other. And then, of course, as happens repeatedly, it happened, as I discussed in my program, about the Syrian conflict as well, when they come up with these clever plans and they present them to the Russians and the, the Russians say no, they come away baffled and angry and they have no idea what to do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, like your program, like your program outline. They're they're the smart ones. Yeah. they're the smart ones, and yeah. everyone else is is, yeah. is just easy to to con and and, and to swindle and and yeah, they're they're not going to realize what's happening because they're the geniuses. Yeah, absolutely, that's what makes them so dangerous. Well, uh, you know, I think it was one of our programs we once said about Jake Sullivan, who is, of course, you know, I, you know I'm pretty sure he's the at least one of the originators of this. Thing. He is the mediocrity who believes himself a genius. And that's what they all do. Not just him. I mean, all of them do. I mean, Ursula thinks that. Uh, uh, Baerbock and Habeck think that in Germany. Uh, um, uh, Johnson used to think that in London. They all think like this. And of course, they're not geniuses. I mean, that's, that's a fundamental mistake. They might be clever in a kind of way, but the Russians are not stupid. And that's the one thing they just can't seem to get round their minds. The Russians aren't stupid. They can see what they're about. In fact, it's obvious what they're about. And beyond that, um, the Russians are not the cynics about their own security that people in the West continuously imagine them to be. Yeah. I find it so... Just a final point. I, I, it's so hard to believe that you could sit across a table with Lavrov, for example, and believe that you can outsmart that man. I, it's just an example, you know. It's how, how can you think that? I, I mean, I, I've never, <laughs> I've never no, met him in person or anything, but I just, no. I, I listen to his speeches. No, no, I listen to what he has to say, and I understand that the guy is very, very, very intelligent. Yes, I mean, why, why would you believe that you can? Sit at a table across from him and and get him to agree to to this West Germany plan, for example. I mean, well, it, it's it, so bizarre. It, it, it is utterly bizarre. But again, look at 
Examples, Liz Truss meeting with Lavrov, Josip Burrell meeting with Lavrov. I mean, what they thought they would do is something like that. And of course, they came away, you know, absolutely, you know, steamrolled over. In the case of Liz, Liz Truss, I don't suppose she even really understood fully what had happened. In the case of Burrell, he got incredibly angry and <laughs> he complained about it in a press conference. But, you know, it hasn't made him change his views. OK, any other uh, final, final no, comments I, I, to wrap I, this video up? I think the thing to always understand is, I mean, they're, they're coming up with a plan which isn't remotely a workable plan. And they're running out of time. Now, I don't know when this Russian offensive is going to happen. But, you know, if it really is the case that Ukraine is now throwing into the conflict its last reserves for this offensive, which is everybody can see has failed, then there isn't an unlimited amount of time. So I, I, I can very easily see, in fact, I would say the most likely outcome is that sometime next year they're going to get exactly the debacle that they've been trying to avoid. It'll be Afghanistan all over again on steroids. All right, yeah. Uh, the Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, and Rockfin. And go to the Duran shop, 10% off. Use the code GOODDAY. And check us out on Twitter as well. All right, take care.